0: Well, good morning. Again, uh, did the sermon outlines make it to the bulletins? Good. No. Okay, there should be more back there. If you if you need one, um, sorry, or just be quick Bible flippers. A lot of different proverbs we're going to be going over this morning. Um, so they've, uh, turned off the clocks, so I'm not on the clock, so settle (laughs) right in. I have no idea what time it is. No, I'm good. Yeah, it doesn't mean anything. So, who can ever forget, if you've heard the quote from Winston Churchill during World War II, He said this, we shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills. Sounds exactly like my family vacations. (laughs) Stole that one from Robert Orban. I did just return from vacation week long, driving all through Canada, southern Canada and New England. It was fantastic. Um, I'm sure your image of my family were a pastor's family, so there were no arguments, no petty disagreements the whole six days we were gone. Right. Now it was, uh, you'll notice that I left them in Maine to get a few days of peace. I do that every year actually. Um, and now I'm preaching about family and parenting because they're not here to roll their eyes. So, <laughs> Dr. Dave talked about marriage as, as Rick said last week and this week we're talking about families, mostly the relationship between parents and children according to Proverbs. If you're new with us this Two-month series that we're going through on Proverbs is very different than how we usually preach. We usually preach straight through a book of the Bible and figure out a you know an appropriate length of text and preach the text and boom. And it's very expository and exegetical. And this is very different because you can't really do that with Proverbs. It's tough. There's just too much in each chapter, and there's not a lot of flow after a few chapters and um, Continuity. So we've grouped verses together, and it's much more topical, which we don't usually do. But I've enjoyed it. Um, I remember in the 80s, as in school, in the 90s, when I was starting youth ministry, there were a lot of articles and books and conferences, talks from Christian leaders warning us that the family was in danger and that societal pressures were driving a wedge. Among families, that divorce was skyrocketing. Families were being torn apart by terrible influences. And I think it's safe to say that nobody needs to be warned anymore. It feels like we're on the other side of that. For a lot of people, the traditional family has broken down in some pockets. Um, But certainly, the family continues. And even if it seems like... There's a free-for-all. Anything goes. The modern family is however you want to define it. We still believe that the family that God ordains with a mother, father, children is God's design for building and passing on godliness from each generation to the next. It's not the primary way. That's the church And it's not the only way that people come to faith. We have evangelism and discipleship. But it's the easiest, and it's the most productive way for God to work from generation to generation. We get the beautiful picture from time to time. Last week, we baptized children. Or when our young teens come through confirmation classes, they will uh, this December. Into full membership of the church, we we see that very visibly, passing on the faith to our children. So this morning, I have hopefully some very encouraging things to say, uh, probably some hard things as well. Whether you're a parent, whether you're a child, or even a grown child, uh, but this and and I, I just want to say this is obviously going to be a very basic, shallow, uh, necessarily shallow. Uh, treatment of family and parenting. There's plenty of books, articles, resources, but uh, we're going to, it's not going to be a thorough treatment. We're just going to try to tie together a lot of the ideas from Proverbs. And where I want to start, your first uh, outline number point one, parents and children should delight in each other. Let's start there. Again, we're taking Proverbs from all over the place, but here we have Proverbs chapter 23, 15, 16, and then 24 and 25. My son, if your heart is wise, my heart too will be glad. My inmost being will exalt when your lips speak what is right. The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. He who fathers a wise son will be glad in him. Let your father and mother be glad. Let her bore you, rejoice. There's no better foundation for a family than to begin by enjoying one another, by letting the other person know that you delight in them. Think of the relationships you're in, not just your family, but there are people that you know they appreciate you. They enjoy spending time with you. You want to please those person. You want to, those people. You want to be with them. And then you have other people. We call them toxic people in our lives, or frenemies, I think is the new word. You don't want to be around them. They just, they want to control you or criticize you, manipulate you. Have you seen? There's a new movie from last year. Not recommending it. Um, but it's called Whiplash. If you've seen even just the plot, it's about a a guy who goes to a very prestigious music school. He's a drummer, so he joins the jazz band. And his initial interactions with the conductor are friendly until the rehearsals start. And the man verbally and physically explodes when the students make mistakes. The movie becomes a study of how much this kid can take from this abusive teacher before he withers. And uh, later in the movie, you kind of find out why this professor treats his students like this, why he acts like that. He's convinced that if he coddles the students and just lets them coast by not giving their best, and he needs to challenge them with the fear of failure. He's convinced they're not going to achieve their full potential. I think there are some parents who take this track, riding their children very hard to be great, using anger, sarcasm, very tough discipline to make their kids grow. You might have heard of the Tiger Mom who wrote a book. I haven't read it, so I can't comment much about it. but A whole book about being super tough on your kids to make them be excellent. And we've all heard of the tennis players and other athletes whose parents were so tough on them and drove them that they wouldn't accept anything but the best. Parents, please don't do that to your kids. Have expectations, great. Ask them to rise to the challenge, raise the bar, but don't base your relationship on you forcing them to be excellent or else you'll reject them. They'll never measure up. We need to cult, cultivate an environment of unconditional love, grace, forgiveness in our families. Unfortunately, my grandfather's philosophy was more along the lines of, if you did well, you knew it. And if you messed up, you needed to hear about it. And his kids grew up trying to please their dad. And my, my, my dad tells the story of his best game ever in Little League. He hit three home runs out of four at-bats. And so in his mind, he's thinking, all right, my dad has to say something. He's got to compliment me. Never really done it before, but, um, but he says that as they were driving away from the field, his dad turned around and said, what happened on your last at-bat? You struck out. He was devastated. I'm so glad that my parents, my dad, had a different parenting philosophy of encouragement. Parents, kids should hear constantly how much you love them, how much you treasure them. Encouraging words. Gary Smalley is a Christian counselor and author. And he talks about when his kids were growing up, when he would walk in the room and they'd be sitting there watching TV or whatever, he would just ham it up and lay it on very thick, treat them like royalty. And he'd say, I am so honored to be in your presence. I'm not worthy of being in your greatness. I'm a lucky man to be here with you. And he would just ham, and they'd go, Dad, come on, stop. But he said, he knew they loved it. We should treasure our children, delight in them. But look back at uh, verses 24, 25. Parents rejoice when their children act wisely and righteously. So while parents should love unconditionally, it's very natural to delight when your children choose wise and godly behavior. Which brings us to point two. Obeying your parents is the foundation for godliness. The first chapter of Proverbs, verses eight and nine, hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. And then chapter fifteen, twenty: A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish man despises his mother. And before we talk about obedience, we have to acknowledge that Proverbs directs sons and daughters just to listen over and over. That that first verse, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 1 says, Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight. There are at least ten other times that Solomon tells his sons to listen, to be attentive to his words, for they will greatly benefit him. Your parents know what's out there. They know, they see problems, pitfalls that await you. They want to steer you away from them. But no parent can help a child who won't listen. And we all know, hopefully, the fifth commandment honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Your parents are your very first human authority figures. Before teachers or law enforcement and any any others, God has placed you in your family to learn obedience because your heart to obey or disobey them reflects your heart to obey or disobey God himself. And that commandment to honor your parents is not just for those under the age of 18. You need to figure out how to honor your parents at every age. As you go off to college, you go off on your own, as you become parents yourself, find the appropriate way, even as your roles change, how you honor your parents. Now, as with any authority, if your parents ask you to break the law, dishonor God. We would encourage you to obey God instead. But even ungodly parents are to be obeyed for the rest of the time. According to Proverbs, what's the natural result of a disobedient son or daughter? Look at uh, two verses. 17 verse 2 and 11, 29 tell us that they inherit nothing. A servant who deals wisely will rule over a son who acts shamefully and will share the inheritance as one of the brothers. And then chapter 11, 29, whoever troubles his own household will inherit the wind and the fool will be servant to the wise of heart. This may not seem like a big deal in our culture where you can just go off to college somewhere, move to the other side of the country, get a job, support yourself. But in those days, in biblical times, your standing, your career, often your your wealth, were very intimately tied to how well your family was doing. And what your parents left you and included you in the family business. If you angered or alienated your parents, Proverbs says you'd be getting nothing. Inheriting the wind, the servants will be left with more than you. I don't know if that's a description or a prescription. It might be both. Certainly a description. But maybe you get to a place where your child is so reckless with money, making terrible choices, that you decide that he or she should not get any of your money now or, or later when you die, because that would just hurt them. But please don't threaten your child with disinheriting them. That's not a good option. I hear people joke about that, but... We should love our children through thick and thin. And even if we decide that they, we don't want to enable what they're doing, we should never tell them that they're not our son or our daughter. I can't think of anything more damaging and certainly doesn't reflect the heart of God who never disinherits His children, never takes away our salvation once we're saved and adopted into His family. We should model the Father who stands and then runs to meet the prodigal. However, over and over in Proverbs, we're told that loving your children involves correction. Point three, loving your children involves correction. And there's a bunch of uh, verses here. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on each one, but let me read through them. Chapter 13, 24 and 25, Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. The righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite, but the belly of the wicked suffers want. Chapter 19, verse 18, Discipline your son, for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. Chapter 22, Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Verse 15, folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Next chapter 23, 13 and 14, do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from sheol. And then to chapter 29, 15 and 17. The rod and reproof give wisdom. But a child left himself brings shame to his mother. Discipline your son and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. Man, there's a lot of rod striking in those verses. I didn't pick them. Maybe you've followed the Adrian Peterson story. He's possibly the greatest running back right now in the NFL and plays for the Minnesota Vikings. But the story came out last year that he disciplined his son with some kind of rod and the bruises were so bad that he was accused of child abuse and suspended for an entire year in the NFL. And I want to do justice to the biblical words because there's a real divide between those who are old school and say, hey, my mama will beat me, good enough for this generation. Um, and then people that say any physical discipline is child abuse. And I think on the one hand, the rod of discipline in these verses is imagery. It can be a, a metaphorical rod, just meaning that you should shepherd your children, using the rod that a shepherd would use for the sheep. Tim Keller says that the word rod means take authority. And it does not always mean corporal punishment. And yet the phrase, it's repeated in, in chapter 23, 13, and 14, the phrase, if you strike him with a rod, he will not die. Strike him with a rod, you will save his life. Doesn't seem totally metaphorical there. But I would always err are on the side of correcting your children with words, with encouragement, with correction. There's not, there's not time this morning to detail the various forms of discipline and punishment that you can use, but it's important for parents to find ways that work for them, for their children. Um, don't assume that what worked for your parents will work for you. Don't assume that what worked for one kid is going to work for another kid. But be very cautious. Children become hardened under constant correction, constant uh, harsh rebuke. Uh, They may outwardly submit, but inwardly be seething. Uh, And I think in that case, discipline has not done its work. All correction needs to be done in a prayerful, controlled state. One commentator, pastor said, while no form of discipline should ever do violence to a child or be administered when a parent it is out of control, this passage recognizes that discipline can be a form of love and that parents who refuse to discipline their children may ruin them. Withholding the necessary discipline from our children is like sitting back and watching them head for destruction. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we never had To correct our children. I feel like a lot of first time moms holding their four week old baby kind of think that this this is one that will just be pure. I'll never, we'll always have this beautiful bond. And then little Jimmy's tearing up the house when he turns two and she changes her tune pretty quickly. Look back, Proverbs 22 15. Says that folly is bound up in the heart of a child. This is not folly that just likes to joke and laugh at body humor, and um, it's the opposite. There's a lot of that in my house. Sorry, it's the opposite of wisdom and obedience. Chat, Romans chapter three says it much more strongly: that no one is good. All. Are selfish, sinful. Children are not born neutral. They're not born, certainly not born good. Every person has inherited the fall of Adam. We're all born with a sinful nature, a disposition bent towards selfishness and evil. You don't have to teach a child how to be selfish, how to hit other kids, take what they want. Children need correction. I don't know if the, the man who wrote Lord of the Flies, William Golding, was a Christian. I don't think he was. But he certainly understood human nature and original sin. You remember the basic plot is that a group of refined British schoolboys get stranded on an island. And at first they act very responsibly and organize themselves. But it's not long before they have a big power struggle and turn on each other and descend into chaos and violence an interesting picture of what children become without the correction of their parents and the restraints of society. I realized a long time ago that it was not as important for me as a dad that my kids are successful in the world's eyes, that they ace everything academically, that they go to an impressive college, climb the ladder of success in the corporate world. If they do, if, they, if they're called to that and they love it, great. If they don't, that's fine. It's way more important for Kath and me that they grow up following the Lord, serving their local church, marrying godly spouses. If they do that and work as ditch diggers, that's great. And I happen to think ditch diggers are just, that's as noble and godly as being a missionary if it's done to the glory of God. And I've told some of my kids, and I remember telling the teens when I was the youth pastor, that if they stray off the path of following the Lord, I'm going to be praying against their succeeding in life. It sounds pretty mean, but I don't want them to be blinded by success and riches if they're not following the Lord. I pray that the Lord makes them Hit bottom and uses that to turn them back to Him. Eternity is too long to care about this life. Of course, my kids are more worried about my wife and me. Sometimes we threaten to get a tattoo just to rile them up and they freak out. Don't do that. Or I get rebuked when I have a glass of wine or don't put on sunscreen or wear a seatbelt. Parents need correction too. They'll, they'll straighten me out soon. My next point with no transition is that <laughs> you should parent in such a way that you know your grandchildren will have good parents. Look at chapter 13 verse 22. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. And then seventeen six Grandchildren are the crown of the aged, and the glory of children is their father's. Now you can take that first verse. Uh, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, very literally, and uh, put your grandchildren in your will and leave your kids out fine if you want to do that it doesn't seem like the hebrew model from what i've read i think it feels like it seems like the oldest son got the bulk of the inheritance so i'm not sure they took that totally literally but it's not wrong if you want to do that often you've lived long enough to see your children become established and be financially okay and maybe you won't see that with your grandchildren although my grandmother's 90 and she's probably going to see a great great grandchild. But I think the more important principle here is the idea that you should parent in such a way that you're instilling beautiful values in your kids that they're going to pass on, that they're going to become great parents. Don't just set your sights on helping your kids survive. (laughs) If I just get them past the teen years, or get them off to college, and pay that off, then I'm good. Set your sights a little higher than that. Think a lot more long-term. Equip your children for life well beyond their years under your house. You'll see the real fruit of your parenting when your, chi- your child is raising their own children. Not that they're going to make all the same decisions that you made, but know that you have a stake in how well your grandkids are parented. J. Oswald Sanders had a book called A Spiritual Clinic that had a section in it where he contrasted two men from New England in the Revolutionary War time, a little before, and he, he, they researched carefully two men and their descendants. The first man was named Max Lute, and he was sort of a notorious uh, man, godless man, who married a godless woman, had lots of kids, but wasted his life, Drinking, couldn't hold down a job. They, they traced 1,200 of his descendants through the years on record. 310 became vagrants. 440 lived a debauched lifestyle. 130 were sent to prison for an average of 13 years each, seven of them for murder. There were over 100 alcoholics, 60 thieves, 190 prostitutes. Of the 20 who learned to trade, 20 out of tw- 1,200, Ten of them learned the trade in prison. It cost the state about $1.5 million, and they made no contribution to society. The other man was named Jonathan Edwards, a pastor and theologian, university president who ministered in New Jersey. He and his godly wife, Sarah, produced over 300 clergymen, missionaries, and theologians, over 100 college presidents, Over 100 attorneys, 30 of them judges, 60 physicians, over 60 authors, and 14 university presidents. Three became U.S. congressmen and one became the vice president of the United States. The impact of godly parents is enormous and can last for many generations. But I want to stop right there because... It is so easy to take on a lot of guilt at this point. Probably the older you are, the longer you've parented. We feel like we failed as parents if our kids turn out poorly or reject the faith. And it sounds like I'm adding now a new layer of guilt, because not only are you responsible for your kid, you're responsible for your grandkids and if one of them's rotten and you're to blame, and please relax. <laughs> Don't take on that guilt. We all know of some of the most famous Christian leaders whose sons were prodigals that walked away from the faith at least for a time. Men with names like Billy Graham, Francis Schaeffer, Luis Palau, John Piper. There are no guarantees in parenting. You can do the best job possible. Your child can still be led astray by the world. Remember the parable of the sower? The seed can land on good soil, and you hope that's what your kids have, but there is no guarantee that they don't have thorny, rocky, hard ground, even if it's just for a time. Teach, train, correct, and love, and... At a certain point, all you can do is pray and keep loving. We're all a mess. Every parent is imperfect. Every kid is imperfect. All we can do is cry out to the God who redeems our messes. My family had a couple mottos growing up. You might use these as well. The family that prays together stays together, and the family that plays together stays together. Sometimes I thought those were kind of contrasting ideas. Some, uh, maybe we were just getting away with something if we were playing games and we weren't reading our Bibles. But I realized realized that they were so important, both of them, very important in the life of our family. it's It's a wonderful thing to be worshiping at church together as a family, as well as having family devotions, praying together at home, discussing the things of the Lord. I think if you never bring up spiritual things at home, don't be surprised if your kids feel like your Christianity is just put on Sunday morning and then easily discarded when you leave church. But also important is time and presence with your kids. Playtime. Which in my family of origin, as well as my current family, is lots of board games and card games combined with you know a few ball games, throwing the ball around in the backyard. Uh, Barnabas Piper is Pastor John Piper's son, and he wrote a book called The Pastor's Kid, which I obviously identified with being a pastor's kid and having four of them growing up in my house. But it's not just pastor's family, I think, that benefit from his wisdom. Listen to this quote from that book. I suspect that during my growing up years, my dad thought family devotions might have the strongest effect on me. But it was the times of pure, uninhabited fun that etched themselves in my mind more deeply. To a child, play is love. I felt loved when my dad played with me and took me on adventures. I yearned for those times with him. The reality is that in the context of relationship, without the connection of recreation and play, the serious message of the gospel becomes heavy, dry, and undesirable. Being fun and affectionate opens doors for eternal things. I love that. Opening doors for eternal things. I hope that's your goal as a parent. Forget about making your kids perfect. Forget about making yourself look good because your kids do well. Instead, look for ways to point your kids to Jesus, to pass on a biblical worldview and to remind your kids that this life is fleeting and they must make choices with eternity in mind. And remember that no matter how good or bad you, a job you do as a parent, if you're a believer, You have a Heavenly Father who loves you and loves your children more than you ever could. And no matter how far short your parents fell in raising you or loving you, you have a perfect Heavenly Father who loves you with an everlasting love. He may discipline you, but it's discipline designed for your good. And never forget... That God loved you so much, He took the punishment that was yours for your sins. God the Father sent God the Son to the cross where His death paid the penalty for the sin of all those who put their faith in Him. The very Son whom God the Father had earlier said, this is my Son in Him. I am well pleased. is the same one that the Father turned away from on the cross. The Son was forsaken by the Father, punished for your sin, for my sin, because someone had to die for those sins. That is true sacrificial love, that the Son went willingly to His death. That's the kind of family that we are adopted into when we come to faith in Christ. You are so much worse and sinful than you choose to believe. So am I. But you are so uh, loved so much greater than you can ever imagine. Let that love overflow to those around you in your family. Give them grace. Give them guidance. Amen take a moment to pray and then I'll close this. Father God, thank you for this morning, for our time together as a body. Thank you for the book of Proverbs that we have studied very quickly, and not in too much depth, but Lord, may we continue to read it, to apply it to every area of our lives. Lord, I know that there's people that walked in here feeling very good about their parenting, and there's others who have felt like failures. There are children who delight in their parents and enjoy them. There are others who are turn their back to their parents. God, we pray for healing. We pray for forgiveness on both sides. We pray for a commitment in our families, to love unconditionally. For parents to be strong leaders and the authority and the correction that our children need. Pass on wisdom and pass on the treasures of the faith. And we pray for children who obey their parents, seeking to please you And so many hours of counseling get used talking about how our marriages, how our families can grow, become better, communicate. So give us the desire to build our families with biblical wisdom, with your grace. Thank you that you adopt us into your family. A family that is secure for all of eternity, and that you are a perfect Father. So bless this church as they hear, as they respond, maybe have some very difficult conversations afterwards. But thank you for your Word that is true and good. Thank you for Jesus. In Jesus' name. Amen.